On today's episode of the Nomcast, we will recap the To Doom global fan event that Netflix put on virtually over the weekend, and then we will review the new Netflix dramedy, The Starling, with Morgan Roberts of the Untitled Cinema Gals podcast. Lots to get to, so let's get to it! Hello, and welcome to the Nomcast, the Netflix original movie podcast. I am your host, Andrew Morgan. You can follow the show at NomcastPod on Twitter and Instagram, and you can check us out on the web at NomcastPod.com. All right, what's going on? Hope everybody is happy and healthy out there. If you're a Netflix subscriber, you got to be at least a little happy right now because we've been bombarded lately with new movies, new shows, new trailers, new season or sequel announcements to some very popular titles, all since we recorded just last week. And a big chunk of those trailers, clips, and updates all came out of the global fan event that Netflix did virtually on YouTube on Saturday. And before we get to all the content that came out from the event, I kind of want to talk about the event itself for a few minutes because this is kind of a new thing for Netflix and it's this type of effort that partners with something I've been talking about a lot on this show and that is the narrative around Netflix fandom and the conversations and legacy around some of their more popular projects. I've always felt that they could do more to try to fan the flames of fandom by doing more events and merch, and more tactile experiences that are more associated with their current competition, namely Disney and Warner HBO Max, who have tons of established IP like Marvel, DC, and Star Wars, who get big bumps every year from Comic-Cons, theme parks, Gamer-Cons, and any other kind of fan-oriented or fan-organized events. And Netflix right now doesn't have that kind of structure or that kind of support from from communities or businesses like that. So, enter Tadum. The name, yeah, it, it's already a problem. <laughs> and a source of mockery around the podcast and press circles. But let's put that aside for a second and focus on what it was and how it works as a fan event. All right? This was a three-hour virtual event that had a new host every hour and a new show or movie they would discuss every few minutes went rapid fire now did they organize these hours around the type of content like putting movies in hour one scripted series in hour two and reality programming in hour three no no they did not did they do it by country as it was a global event and had, you know, stuff that they were highlighting from all different types of countries and languages and any of that. No, no, they didn't. Did they do it by popularity and put the strongest titles up front and the lesser titles at the end or vice versa? No, this was three hours of a seemingly random order of updates ranging in various levels of popularity pinging all over the globe with long stretches of programming in various languages, and it was hard to tell how long it would be until my favorite or most anticipated show or movie was going to be highlighted. And if I'm, like, if I'm sitting there and I'm anticipating a new trailer for, say, Army of Thieves, is that in hour one, two, or three? I don't know. Like, if I'm sitting there and it's like, oh, Stranger Things, I'm craving for it because it hasn't come. When when does the clips for that come? I don't know. And I think that type of confusion and lack of knowledge or patience really kind of hurt the numbers because when it first started, it got up around 60,000 viewers. And again, that's just YouTube US. They had it you know, set up in multiple spots. So 60,000 in that one, I'm not going to kill them for any numbers, but just to show you, by hour three, it was down in the low 20,000s. So I definitely think that they could have organized this a bit better, keep people on the hook, or at least know when people want to tune in. You know, I'm also curious 
about the content side from the fan perspective. Like, is this is this what fans wanted? Like, a few minutes with their favorite star in front of a green screen introducing trailers, clips, and behind-the-scenes footage? I'm sure that's part of it, for sure. Like, they definitely want the content. I'll be talking about my favorite ones soon enough. But I think fans truly want a version of what this event was last year. They did this same style event in person in, I believe, South America with a Comic-Con-style format of panels, pop-up interactive displays for certain shows, and a bunch of other fan-oriented stuff that makes them feel like they are truly connecting with their favorite Netflix projects. Will this be an in-person event here in the States or in multiple locations all over the world this time next year? provided we don't continue to have a global health crisis. I I think that would be cool if it was. That would be a serious step in the right direction for making a greater connection with their fans. Uh, You know, just kind of their own personal Comic-Con and make this kind of lavish event thing. That would be awesome. And do it in multiple countries. Maybe take it on the road. I don't know. I mean, with the internet, once you do it once, you'd have to spread the content out. But that would be interesting. But flawed or not, da-dum happened (laughs) and it provided us with a bunch of new movie happenings to talk about so let's get to some of the highlights much like the sizzle reel from earlier this year the big news came from all the star-studded action and adventure films that Netflix has really started to crank out lately, starting with the most expensive film they've produced to date, Red Notice. They unveiled a new clip for the film that showed a fight sequence between the three main stars, Gal Gadot, Ryan Reynolds, and The Rock, in a museum or showroom of sorts where the two male leads are trying to stop Gadot from stealing a gem-covered egg. I will say... I'm a little concerned at this point. I thought the clip was fine. I thought the trailer was better, which is never good when it's like, okay, we're watching what the movie is going to be actually like. And really, I wasn't quite feeling the chemistry between the three of them. And I wanted to get pumped for this movie off this clip, and I didn't quite get there. Um, I, I didn't really feel the chemistry... I did in parts of the trailer. Like I said, the trailer was a little bit better. And the fight choreography was, it was fine. It wasn't anything special. And But if, you know, again, the star power and the price tag for this one, they really need a big hit here. So I'm, I'm starting to get, I'm a little, a little concerned that this one might not do what I hope. But uh, I hope that this is not an omen for things to come. And I hope this thing delivers big time uh, come mid-November. Another action film update that made a lot of headlines came from Thor himself, Chris Hemsworth, who delivered the message that Extraction 2 is filming soon and he will be bringing back his character, Tyler Rake, after we last officially saw him take several bullets and falling off a bridge into the water below. Um, The first Extraction film was the most watched film in the history of Netflix Studios, so I'm sure the sequel will be much anticipated when it comes to the platform. I'll be shocked, though, if Red Notice doesn't beat that number. That is something to keep an eye on for sure. Um, I did find it interesting, though, that Hemsworth mentioned nothing of his other Netflix film, Escape from Spiderhead, that was supposed to come out this year. It was in the big sizzle reel at the beginning of the year, and yet we haven't received word of a release date or a trailer to this point, and it's getting pretty late in the game here, and they already have a pretty packed schedule. Very interesting indeed. And rounding out the action films, we got more clips and new trailers for the upcoming Army of the Dead prequel, Army of Thieves, and the Jay-Z produced an unbelievably well-casted Western, The Harder They Fall. Still looking forward to both of those. Nothing I saw really fully dissuade me in in anything. Some of The Harder They Fall um, choreography, some of the slow-mo stuff and the editing, 
uh, was a tad rough in spots. Like, uh, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, you know, again, uh, but the more and more I saw her, like longer extended stuff, it started to get better. So, again, still very much in, very much excited for that cast. Oh, my God. Jonathan Majors, Idris Alba, Regina King, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Keith Stanfield, all of it. Zazie Beats, awesome. Like, and there was a, a women's action panel that they did, which I thought was actually some of the best stuff um, from the the event. Um, so if that's online too, check that out for sure. Um, and then Millie Bobby Brown graced the stage and let us know that Enola Holmes 2 is starting production this week. So hopefully we will see that one around this time next year, I would hope. Uh, I quite enjoyed the first one and it is a top 10 all-time views film for Netflix. So it was a very simple a uh, green light for them to do the sequel. Seems like a lot of people are are coming back for the second one. They they talked to um two of the other main stars from that as well. So you're basically getting the the full package right back. Um, who knows about Helena Bottom Carter? Obviously, being the mother who's kind of like in secret right now. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, where. Where the action lies with that one, but I am very much anticipating that one, and I don't think I'm alone there. Um, besides the action films, a couple award season hopefuls also got a couple updates. We are treated to a behind-the-scenes look at Bruised, which is directed by and starring Oscar winner Halle Berry. Lots of shots of her in the octagon fighting in MMA matches and showing her behind the camera for the first time as this is her directorial debut. And then we got a new clip from the new Adam McKay film, Don't Look Up, a movie we've talked about to death that we are super excited. It seems to be one of the, the top films that Netflix is trying to go for uh, in award season this year. Um, and the clip showed us Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence's scientist characters delivering the information to the president, played by Meryl Streep, that a comet is going to hit Earth and cause massive devastation. You also have Jonah Hill as Streep's son and chief of staff, and so far the reaction to this one has been mixed at best. And I think it's because of how they edit it and the music they put behind it and kind of like the mode that they were doing, it didn't seem like how it will probably play out in the film. I think they were trying to make it kind of, you know, pop, you know, almost like as if it was kind of like an extended trailer type thing. I don't think the pacing of this scene will be the same at all, but I got to say, I think I'm with the majority here where I'm starting to get kind of underwhelmed by the stuff I see and continue to be underwhelmed. Like, you know, the teaser trailer was was okay. I'm I'm still in. It didn't dissuade me, but it wasn't anything where I was like, yes, can't wait for this thing. Uh, but I am still very excited and very much in. But I will be devastated if this ends up being like kind of like a better conceptual uh, film than a well executed film, especially with the trademark bite and snark that I love from Adam McKay and the amazing cast. That's involved here. So let's hope for the best. But that clip didn't exactly, uh, you know, put me in the mood that I was hoping for. And that's it for the movie updates. And the good part for anyone who didn't sit on YouTube for three hours like I did is that all of this stuff is on YouTube right now. It was almost immediately out there, whether you were on Twitter and like aggregators were putting it out. I know I was following... Uh, you know, what's on Netflix all day, seeing what they are, were putting out. Um, or, you know, because once it was available, it seemed like everybody had it and then immediately put it out to the world. It's like, okay, well then, what makes this a fan event if we're all just sitting here watching it when I could have just waited for the whole internet to just dump it out to me in increments later on? Um, but yeah, it's on YouTube right now. The full three hours or just the clips and trailers broken off into their own videos. So check those out. Let us know on our socials, at NomCastPod, what you are looking forward to uh, the most out of all those, or if anything wowed you for the films coming soon. Uh, we also got three other film trailers that weren't at To Doom this week. Uh, Passing, 
got its first Netflix cut trailer after the movie premiered at Sundance this past year, and I think I think this one looks great. I, I was really impressed by the trailer. I think you know impressive cinematography, all the things that they said, um, you know, were the hallmarks or the appeal of this movie was on full display in this trailer. I really enjoyed it. So I'm definitely looking forward to that one. And we also got a trailer for Britney versus Spears, which is out right now, I believe, if you're listening to this on the day of release. Uh, I was stunned that they released a trailer for a high-profile doc a week or less before it comes out. I've never seen that before. Uh, maybe they did it because of the subject matter and how much coverage has already been released on this case. Um, so you can watch the Netflix doc version of this story right now if you're you're part of the hashtag Free Britney movement or have been following along that story or maybe you want to see if it's any different than, I believe, wasn't there a, a Hulu version that had like uh, the New York Times behind it? Something like that. There's been a bunch of stuff around that one, but I am interested, um, you know, in the Netflix version of it all. So check that out and we'll, we'll probably talk about it at some point on this podcast. And then we have a Halloween horror film update as we got a trailer for night teeth, which of course they did. They put it out right after we previewed it last week. This is a vampire film that has stars like Megan Fox, Alexander Ludwig and Alfie Allen from game of Thrones. And I think it looks pretty fun doesn't take itself too seriously. It's one of the things that we hoped for when we were talking about it. Uh, we don't get to see a lot of those stars I mentioned in the trailer as there are more supporting casts in this one. You get little glimpses of them here and there, uh, but is still definitely on the watch list and something that we will cover as October rolls along. That movie comes out on the 20th of October. And speaking of Halloween horror films, another one of the horror films we previewed, No One Gets Out Alive comes out today if you are listening to this on the day of release i have seen this film uh, i was able to get a, uh, an early look at that from netflix uh thank you to them for that and i think i'm still processing the ending of this film it takes a wild third act turn that is worth seeing just for that conversation with other people it definitely has some good scares along the way and is is definitely worth watching. Uh, I'm like I said, though, I'm still kind of processing how this one landed. Um, we will do a full breakdown of that one coming soon after a couple of the big horror films come out. Um, we'll probably end up doing like that one and uh, the Sean Levy uh, produced one. There's someone inside your house coming up in probably a couple weeks after we do. Um, the guilty for sure next week. So a lot of stuff coming out, man. I'm very excited, but we'll absolutely do a full breakdown of that one coming soon. And speaking of reviews, after this quick break, I brought on film critic and podcaster Morgan Roberts of the Untitled Cinema Gals podcast to help me break down the new dramedy, The Starling, which centers around a couple played by Melissa McCarthy and Chris O'Dowd, who attempt to put the pieces of their lives back together after a tragic loss, but are met with mental and physical hurdles that include a battle with a starling bird that torments McCarthy's character at her home. It was a great talk with Morgan, and I hope you stick around after this word from our friends at Forgotten Entertainment. Attention, culture consumers. Join me, the Queen of Queries, Sarah O'Connor, and my band of nerdy knights. Colleen McMillan, Flo Siegel, and Anders Drew on Bohemian Geek Studies, where we take extremely dorky dives into our favorite fandoms, especially that Star Wars galaxy far, far away. Listen each week as we examine the stories that mean so much to us. Bohemian Geek Studies is available wherever you get your podcasts and is proudly part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. Hey there, I'm Mr. Black. And I'm Mr. Green. And we're a couple of guys who met in a comic book store. Together, we host the Pint O' Comics podcast, where we invite listeners to join us to talk about movies, TV, comics, music, or just whatever. Starting very soon, we'll be joining up with the fine folks at Forgotten Entertainment, 
for a special limited series called On the QT, where we talk Tarantino. Every week for 10 weeks, a guest will join us to chat about every Quentin Tarantino movie from Reservoir Dogs to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So join us starting in May 2021. On the QT is available wherever you download your podcasts and is part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. Ooh, that's a bingo. All right, Morgan Roberts is here. Thank you for coming back. It's been far too long. Yeah, it's been a while. I'm so happy to be back. Thanks for inviting me. If you can remember, we did uh, The Dig and yeah. and I Care A Lot. Still in 2021. Unfortunately, this year is still going on. It is uh, a very it, long year. <laughs> a very long year. So I was, I was surprised myself that it hasn't been an entire year since you've been back. Yeah. <laughs> but here we are uh, where I thought... This uh, was going to be the unofficial kickstart to award season uh, kind of for Netflix with uh, a movie that was in festivals and 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 had a big buzz when it was acquired. Um, but I don't know if that's the case anymore, but we'll get to it. The Starling uh, mm-hmm. is what we're going to cover today. Uh, Melissa McCarthy starring in this one. And, you know, it's got a star-studded cast. It's got Theodore Melfi coming off of Hidden Figures and St. Vincent. And it did go to the to the Toronto International Film Festival, um, but I I started to get it's like that it's like a horror movie when you're waiting for like other people's opinions on things and then yes. not seeing the film. It's like, oh, which version of this am I gonna get? It's such a coin flip, like uh, you know, because I, I I was talking to you off air about Theodore Melfi, like his films are kind of saccharine anyway, so yeah. a lot of the a lot of the the buzz about this one was that you know it could be a little you know heavy-handed you know a little over- melodramatic so i'm like yeah that's kind of what he does so yeah. you know yeah, i was like this can so. go either way but you're, you're a person who saw hidden figures like what did you feel about that film that maybe was the primer going into this one well i mean so like with hidden figures we're we have three female characters who are women of color, whose stories don't get told very often. Right. And while the central women and the actresses understood their assignment, they did also kind of just have a dude, unfortunately, directing all of it. <laughs> sure. And I think it has not aged as well as it could have if it had been in potentially better or more equipped hands it's kind of like the help when that came out and everyone was like oh here's this really um diverse cast and it's actually you know we're giving viola davis uh time to actually act instead of eight minutes against meryl streep even though she can do it right and a decade later you're like oh this is very white and painful (laughs) sure um so I think I don't think Hidden Figures is as bad as The Help, but I'm using it as a comparison. Right. Um, but yeah, so I mean, like going into this, uh, as I kind of told you beforehand, I knew nothing going in. And maybe that helped in some ways, but it certainly hindered in some others. Yeah, I mean, it, I find that fascinating too i'm always fascinated when netflix this giant studio this giant machine that cranks out so many movies and projects and you know there's there's their social media presence is big and yet i still manage to have many people come on here and be like i knew nothing about this movie and we're also you and i are both people who are you know constantly on like film twitter and things like that and this is a movie that you know is by a major studio that went into festivals and yet you still didn't know yeah. much beforehand. And if you want to like stack things on top of each other, the movie, uh, the script for this movie was on the blacklist as early as 2005. So like it, you know, had some kind of profile, you know, a decade and a half ago. Uh, and for anyone who doesn't know, the blacklist is uh, the list of the most liked unproduced screenplays. So at a time, this was a, a, a high-profile project before it even got put into production. Then Netflix acquires this for $20 million at auction <laughs> based on the script and a four-minute promo reel, which is, uh, at the time, a lot of the articles were saying, this is how desperate 
the studios are. But mm-hmm. this is also based, you know, Netflix also got so much money uh, from the people staying home during the pandemic, just constantly adding subscribers and everything else that they were just like, yeah, we need to keep this show going. So they they got desperate enough to put 20 mil on this one. And it makes sense because McCarthy's kind of a person who they they touted this year. They're going to try to keep that going, too, because uh, she had Thunder Force. If everybody uh, forgot about that film, I don't blame them. Uh, that happened earlier this year. And then she also has a new Netflix series uh, starting production, God's Favorite Idiot, uh, that is also with her husband, Ben Falcone, who directed Thunder Force. And I wish they would not do. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's great uh, to have, you know, husband and wife team feels very familiar. But a lot of the stuff they've done together is not great. No. Um, uh, yeah, I we had a Cinema Gals episode where we talked about um, Melissa McCarthy and Paul Feig. Mm, and if they yeah. could only work together, totally. that's great. Golden. Absolutely. Put Spy 2 on Netflix and I will be there. Absolutely. Is he the Heat too? Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't know whether he uh, directed that, but I thought he at least produced it. But yeah, between Bridesmaids, Spy, the Heat, like they do great work. <laughs> just keep it up. You know, Ghostbusters aside, well, well, that's just a. We'll I mean, it was, it was it's fun. Fine. It's uh, maybe it's not award winning, but it, it's enjoyable. Yeah, yeah it's fine. Uh, you know, it's uh, I'm more of like I'm not mad at it in the sense of like oh this is an all female reboot kind of thing, but it's just I'm not a big fan of large IP reboots in general, and yeah. let, and especially doing something that to me Ghostbusters was one of my favorite is one of my favorite movies you know from my childhood and, and still going on into adulthood. So you know that was a the, a touchier one. Like you got to yeah. really bring something if you're gonna make me feel better and uh, a song with fallout boy is not going to do it. So, um, but moving back into the starling, it's one of those things where I, I did see us was going to Toronto when we did kind of like our state of the union episode for this year, kind of seeing what maybe might be the awards films. And even up until recently, you know, we, uh, me and also Mike from Mike, Mike and Oscar kind of went over like maybe what the pecking order of certain films going into award season was. This was on the list. And we thought, like, I watched the trailer for this movie, and I was weeping. (laughs) I was like, this is unbelievable. It's worked on me so well. And, I, you know, I think a lot of people responded either to the trailer or just, you know, now that it's on Netflix, a lot of people, you know, saw what, you know, was going on, like a kind of a, a, a dramedy with Melissa McCarthy and, uh, and Kevin Klein, who a lot of people like, including myself. Ironically, um, these type of movies don't get made a lot anymore. Uh, you know, kind of this over-saccharine, you know, dramedy types. But what's funny is anytime those movies kind of come up, I think of Kevin Klein sometimes because there's a movie yeah. um, called Life as a House that came out in, back in like 01. Um, and that's back when more of those movies were still being produced. And that movie is just a giant metaphor machine, kind of like this film. And for some reason, that one really worked on me uh, at the time. I haven't watched it probably since 2001, but it kind of makes me, I was like, oh, okay, so maybe this film could work too. Uh, based on that. Have you seen that movie at all? I haven't. And okay. I just, that's a 20 year old film. Yeah, I know. <laughs> which, uh, which starred, uh, which shows you its time period. Hayden Christensen uh, was kind of like the petulant teenager in that one, hot off of, uh, it, like right smack in the middle of the 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 prequel trilogy for Star that's Wars. So just yeah. a very specific time capsule. Yeah, and um, yeah, because it was like. Kevin Klein, Hayden Christensen, Mary Steenburgen, I think is in that movie. It's a, it's a very much a time capsule, as you were saying, for sure. Um, this movie, uh, the script, the lead roles were originally reversed. Um, the wife was in the mental health facility, and then the husband was home battling the, the starling bird, as it were. Um, you know, I, I, Do you think that that was probably the right choice in this, now mm-hmm. seeing the film? I mean, if there were right choices in this film, that was certainly (laughs) one of them. Okay. Because I think that we have, and this goes back to like 
Tennessee Williams kind of plays and, you know, the early films, but we really are good at making women crazy and hysterical. And I say this with air quotes. And so I think that if it was in the original where the woman is in a mental health facility, I think it would have perpetuated that stereotype. Right. And I think by reversing them, it at least makes it say like men, you should probably go see a therapist. Um, <laughs> yeah. And also allows for a man to like have a mental health crisis and right. be in a place where you're supposed to receive care. Sure. Um, and then it also then is like a gender role reverse too, where a woman is at home and having to be the stable one and having to, um, you know, be the breadwinner so that their partner can go through this treatment. So, I mean, that's pretty revolutionary still, but sure. I might be one of the few things that work. <laughs> yeah. All right. I've, I've done it now. I was like, kind of, you could probably tell I was kind of stalling, trying to yeah. set this thing mm-hmm. up a little bit. Let's rip the bandaid off, Morgan. Let's yeah. kind of do it because here it is, folks. The scores before we give our opinions on this movie IMDb, uh, (laughs) 2.8 letterbox. Those are some of the more kind. The the interesting thing that I saw between this, and I feel like this is how it's kind of going forward, the critics are destroying this movie. Yeah. But the audiences are not. So, uh, And I wonder if it's kind of like a level of expectations on people who had maybe expectations Mm -hmm. versus people who are just tuning in on. Because here's where I see it. So 32 Metascore, got awful. Um, 22% Tomato Meter, which so those those are the critical responses. Just they hate this thing. But a 6.3 IMDb, a 76% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, and a 2.8 letterbox says general folks... Aren't that mad at this movie? Like, it's kind of still middling, just this was a fine enough effort. So do you find that surprising or do you, now that you've seen it or no? Well, as someone whose uh, villain origin story is that Practical Magic has a 22% on Rotten Tomato, uh, <laughs> right. that kind of hurts. Um, yeah. That they are at the same level for critics. Sure. Um, but, I mean, it kind of makes sense. Um a general audience who isn't going to sit there and determine whether or not this has Oscar contention and will help, you know, propel a film or an actor into Oscar season. Did I escape for an hour and 44 minutes? Did I maybe laugh a few times? Did I maybe cry a few times? That's the barometer. And I think what this film and to kind of bring it back to, I care a lot, which we, talked about yeah it's one of those films that tries to tackle too many things and Mm. audiences are a little bit more forgiving of that because they're like as long as there's something that i liked in it right then i can at least stay in it where i think a critic is going to look at it as are all of these pieces coming together does it all make sense is it cohesive and if it's not then i'm going to sit there and be super mad about it sure yeah, a muddled mess can pass, uh, you know, an audience mm-hmm. test a little bit better than maybe the two of us. We'll see in a minute. But um, I will say that not only are the scores doing well, but right now, because we are recording this on a Monday night, um, this is the number one movie on Netflix and number two overall, where you would not believe that this is outpacing Midnight Mass, Mike Flanagan's new miniseries that I see people covering everywhere and it's beating that right now and i find that wild because we're about heading into october flanagan's miniseries are legendary on netflix and it is only losing to the absolute bananas squid game i don't even know if you're familiar with squid game have you seen i have not seen squid game it is a kind of thing like a korean kind of Hunger Games-ish type series of competition and death and all the all the weird things you could possibly think 
uh, would happen is number one on Netflix, which speaks a lot to Netflix. Right? I mean, yeah, it kind of unfortunately also tracks. Yes. So let's let's bring it to the people, Maureen. Let's tell me your initial reactions after finishing this film. Um, so I think the fact that it took me three sittings to actually finish the film says something because Mm. I have been able to sit still in many a film and (laughs) this one, every so often I was like, I'm too bored. I just turned it off. Right. So, um, that is the kindest thing I can say about it is that I (laughs) did at least finish it. Sure. But it, it was not an easy thing for me to finish. Yeah, I was I was searching for answers a little bit with this one. And, you know, I, I thought like if I gave it a second watch, which I know a lot of people are not going to do, um, but I, st- I didn't go through a full second watch. But what I did do is I started to to watch because I, I when I first felt uh, when I first watched the film, I felt like the movie got better as it went along but was not good enough for me mm-hmm. to be still like recommending this film at all. Um, and one of the things when I did search for an- answers, I did two things. One, I watched St. Vincent, which is an older uh, Theodore Malfi film with Bill Murray and Melissa McCarthy and, and Chris O'Dowd. So some familiar people who are in this film um, and you know, you're seeing uh, a lot better work in St. Vincent, even though, I, you know, admittedly, that movie also starts out slow with kind of some hokiness and dad joke corniness and a little bit of like over the top characterization that you kind of have to just go, woof, is this going to be how it is the whole time? Um, and thank goodness there is more heart and more character development and, you know, it's fucking Bill Murray, like, so yeah. you, you can't mess with with that but i mean there are definitely better relationship building and and no birds weirdly enough in 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 saint vincent and by the end of that film i was straight up like in tears you know uh you know that it actually gets uh to the heart of the matter this one i will say i i, may, I might have even mentioned this to you when we talked about the dig uh, being in quarantine and being uh, more in isolation over these uh, last 18 months, definitely way easier to, uh, you know, weep at a movie. Mm-hmm. And if you're doing a movie where you're talking um, a massive loss and I'm a parent and that it's like a parent's worst nightmare for this, um, on top of the fact that I, you know, really like these characters and, you know, some of these people are really good at landing the dramedy roles like a Kevin Klein. Um, and yet, yet, I still did not. I barely shed a tear in this movie. And there's a lot. There's a lot you could. And yet, I did not. Instead, there are a lot of eye-rolling induced dad joke stuff in this one, too. But way more throughout. And I felt actually quite bad for mm-hmm. McCarthy here. Um, because she's the character that's more wrapped in cliche uh, than and yeah. a lot of the plot lines that come through, especially with literally the Starling. Like this movie is a metaphor machine. Like I was kind of mentioning up top where it's like, you got, you know, the garden, you got the actual Starling itself. You got so many things here that they ju- it's just relentless. Um, you know, the broken wing, nursing something back to health after losing a child. Uh, the Even how the mating habits of the bird goes. Like, uh, the therapist turned veterinarian. <laughs> like, how much do we need? Um, where you were saying that a, a lot of things going on all at once. But they, this one, it was a lot of things, but it was all kind of feeding into the how we recover from loss, kind of the shrapnel of that altogether. But it was so heavy-handed and mm-hmm. so obvious and borderline just, you know, tear your hair out at times. Yeah, it kind of is like you were they were trying to spoon-feed the message over and over and over again. And, like, by the end, it was like, no more. I can't, like... I can sit through 10 hours of Law and Order SVU where Ice-T literally <laughs> tells me the plot. Yes. <laughs> but this, I mean, it was just to the point where 
was like, I get it. I get it. Grief is awful. This is a horrible thing. You have to survive it. What I mean, how many birds are there? There were multiple (laughs) birds and they were all CGI. Yes. How many times do we have to see Chris O'Dowd be relentlessly depressed to the point where it's like he's been in a hospital for a year? Yeah. Like there is no hospital that's like, yeah, we're going to keep you here over and over and over again. Your insurance sure as heck is not going to let you stay there for a year without going home and having to be readmitted. So it just is. And then again, her having to do like all these hokey things with a bird wearing a freaking football helmet and, you know, going to her place of work, which I'm sorry, Timothy Oliphant is in this film for like 10 seconds, like put him in more. I would have liked more Timothy Oliphant and less bird. Yeah. If you want to talk about wasted characters, Timothy Oliphant and David Diggs are both in this movie Mm -hmm. and you're kind of just like, why? Like you couldn't have filled that with a a cheaper character actor that just you know you're you're not giving them anything. Why are you you know kind of bringing bigger ticket you know impressive individuals into this movie to do absolutely nothing? Um, David Diggs is the real like like what are we doing? Because yeah, he's he's there. He's in the mental health facility. You can and working with Chris O'Dowd's character, you could have had anything anything two guys who could probably improv a scene better than what they were given and it's rough because again like we were saying that you're right you're absolutely right about like the lengthy stay we're in a healthcare crisis <laughs> right now yeah. where like there's no way in my head that he could just kind of chill there for for that long and you know be like you know i don't know are you are you on the state like what how does that work like that shouldn't be the thing that I'm dwelling on in a movie like this, but it mm-hmm. kind of is. Or why is uh, Kevin Klein? How how did he go from being a psychiatrist to being a veterinarian? Because just because you understand medicine does not mean that it's the same kind of medicine. You can't just did he go back to school? What was that like? That actually yeah. was probably a more interesting story of a man who was taking care of people for forever and went back to school well into his career because he couldn't handle it anymore. That's a more interesting story. They don't really explain that much Mm -mm. at all. I thought that was a missed opportunity. I wonder if that was something that was there and was on the cutting room floor. I'd be interested to know if any of that kind of fell through because that is one of the things that I did kind of write down where I was like, why is he this guy and why after that first visit once you know it's a veterinarian's office you're like i have big things i'm dealing with right now i'm leaving like the minute like she kind of tries a little bit to leave but like i'm probably leaving anyway even when he was like yeah come on back i'd be like no i'm done like why am i here there are probably a litany like a huge amount of opportunities for other therapists and other people that they could do get one more recommendation just one you know it's not like you failed to to go through like a bunch and then he was the guy there's no reason for for you to go to him and stay in that office yeah and it also makes no sense that that was the only recommendation that she got because it's like if you're a mental health professional, wouldn't you like give multiple people to be like, maybe try them out? Like, yep. because if you're trying to look for a therapist, not every person's going to work for you. So you probably give people a couple of, couple of options. Yeah. And she was just like, go see this guy and just rolls up to a vet clinic. And he was like, I don't do that anymore, but let's talk about your feelings anyways. Right. I also felt like the gardening aspect that kind of like sets off a lot of this stuff had no momentum to it whatsoever. At least like there was a conversation about um, moving on from the loss of their child and kind of getting rid of some materials. And that started like how this kind of went through. But the gardening thing just was like, okay, their yard's a little overgrown. Like, why are we doing this massive thing? And then even showing little moments about like, you know, where they planted stuff before and and it's her husband's art and, you know, kind of in a kid vein and all these kinds of things. Like, 
it didn't make a lot of sense that this was kind of the reclam part of the reclamation project, something that was so important that the bird would be in the way. Mm-hmm. And I mean, because there were so many like bird metaphors, you know, they're talking about the oh starling God. making nests <laughs> and like the whole thing is, is she's kind of deconstructing this nest that she made. Yeah. And she got rid of all of her kids' stuff very early on into the film, which I think would have been a much more impactful thing of being right. able to be like, I am letting go because I have physically let go of physical possessions that remind me of my daughter who is no longer here. Yeah. And it happens super early on in the film. And it's like, well, what are it? It wasn't done necessarily in like a... Um, Betty Gilpin and glow where she has like a mental breakdown and gets rid of stuff. Like it's very like, okay, someone told me that I should do this and I do this. And um, like, there was no weight to it. And then there's just a continued talk about a recliner. And I'm like, that doesn't fit any of these bird metaphors. Or anything that was set up or paid off by this relationship. And that's kind of the thing too. They, (laughs) I had when I went back because I wanted to watch at least like a little bit on rewatch and it's so striking how early they get into it because mm-hmm. th- they literally are when they're uh, drawing the, the mural for their child's room and he's drawing a tree and they say, do you think that we should add a bird up there? And they go and she's like, ah, birds are tricky. And he's like, oh, you just need to be gentle with them. And it's like, we're already starting with the bird thing from yeah. literally the first two minutes of this. And then it, you know, goes right into, uh, you know, the CGI bird chase that is completely unnecessary. And they also happen to fly through characters we're going to meet later too. Like, like this is just uh, the saddest attempt at trying to be like Forrest Gump or something. Mm-hmm. Like, what are we doing? I don't know. Like, it was just too much um, that it it kind of just glazes over you on first watch. But when you watch it again, you're just like, my God, this is heavy handed and unnecessary, especially the bird chase. Like, are you just trying to show off that you made a CGI bird or multiple CGI birds? Like, what what's the point? It's like, look at our budget. We got this cool bird that we made and that we're going to fly through all of our set to introduce all of our characters, which I mean, that feels like very hokey soap, you know, primetime soap opera kind of uh, like if the Desperate Housewives was going to be turned into a movie, like they would for sure do something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It does scream TV movie. And, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think I've I saw some of the early reviews when it was coming out that they definitely kind of said, how are how is this at Toronto when this is like barely above like a Lifetime movie or some kind of Hallmark movie, those type of things. And they're not totally wrong uh, here. And and it's sad because I, I, I do. OK, let let's try to be slightly more positive. I will start with what I actually liked about the movie because I feel like we're just kind of, you know, ripping it apart a little bit here, probably for good reason. But um, I enjoyed Chris O'Dowd and and for and I enjoyed his storyline enough because he has real pain and mm-hmm. real moments of kind of like true feelings and actual growth that is kind of chartable. In a way, and some of the, like, the one big line that is right towards the end that I actually laughed um, was when he handed her um, the light switch cover. Mm -hmm. And he was like, you know, he's going through all this, like, processing and trying to get through it and trying to apologize and do all this thing. He's like, so that makes up for everything, right? (laughs) Like, I actually laughed at that because it's like, yeah, you just went through a year of a mental breakdown and... And being not being around, and you know, obviously there's a reason why he's in the mental health facility. I'm not going to give every spoiler here, but you know, he's trying to to make men's, and it's kind of like I gave you a light switch cover without a hole in the center. <laughs> yep. I mean, 
Chris O'Dowd was fine. I think, not to get too negative, but I do think that the film is a little bit too long for everything that it's trying to tap. Fine enough to where when he's on screen, I'm not like, oh, again. Right. Um, but I particularly liked, there was, there was a scene where he essentially is like shutting Melissa McCarthy out and mm-hmm. she goes to her car and ha- like vocalizes everything that it was like, I think that this is what she's feeling, but I can't, yeah. I can't get it because uh, unfortunately she's been given dad jokes and bird metaphors out yep. the ass. Yeah. And her in that scene I thought was particularly good because it was Again, in a film that was literally talking down to its audience most of the time, that was the one time where I wanted someone to vocalize exactly what they were feeling. And she did it in a very like powerful way because yeah. it was showing her frustration with the situation, her isolation in grieving by herself because her partner isn't there, her resentment of him. And it's the very quick scene, but she she wasn't given a lot to do and she took that moment yeah no i agree i i actually like that scene a lot basically any time that this movie had a pulse and didn't kind of like half ass any of the the dialogue or the emotion or any of those things like they really could have dug at least if you're gonna be a kind of a a ham-fisted melodrama crank it up at time Mm -hmm. like make it work like, because we're talking about very delicate subjects um, with dealing with loss and mental health and, and you know, moving on from horrific stuff. I mean, gosh, how am I feeling like this is, like, treading extremely lightly? And we're in the 2020s. When do we get to have a—it's it's actually very jarring now to see kind of a, a lighthearted— non-realistic version of mental health facilities mm-hmm. uh and and how things are are cared in these type of things like we shouldn't be you know thinking everything is cuckoo's nest but we also shouldn't think that this is like cartoonish stereotypes and kind of that type of setting doesn't even seem accurate like none of it seemed like they they did homework here to make things yeah. lived in or authentic in any way. Yeah. I mean, and especially because like he is coming off of a very traumatic event and there were times where it's like, he is very shut off from a lot of the people in the facility and, you know, um, he's using art and like art therapy is a thing are we not maybe going to say like, Hey, you made this piece of uh, art. What does it mean to you? Yeah. Like, which, just, which is what I thought David Diggs was going to be. Yeah. <laughs> and instead it's just like, Oh, look at him make art. And we're not going to touch on anything that it has to represent or let this character show their grief through their art. They're just like yeah. making ceramics. And it's like, well, that's not what we need to be focusing on um and again like as you said it's 2021 um it's not that hard to talk to people about their mental health and find out what it's like to go into a hospital go into a residential uh treatment facility go into you know if you're a celebrity go somewhere for exhaustion which is yep term for something else um (laughs) sure you know (laughs) there is so much more access and it it just still blows my mind that we can't talk about mental health in a real way or even find the humor in it there's um there's a show on not netflix so i'm not going to mention exactly what platform it's on but um it's fine so there's this uh show on hulu called this way up that is Mm -hmm. a dramedy Okay. And talks about mental health. And it is one of the few shows that makes me very sad and a little weepy because I am shut off from most of my emotions, but also <laughs> does a great job of being particularly funny because right. it, 
you know, it's a woman who went through a mental health crisis and she's coming out of the other side and finding the humor and being like, okay, yeah, I'm still kind of a train wreck because existence and yeah, we had such a great opportunity here because you have people like Chris O'Dowd and Melissa McCarthy who have done a lot of comedy and have done some dramas slash a little dramedy and it just we we wasted so much potential there yeah can you still forgive me gives her a lot of leeway um and i'm sure there's more examples i just can't think of off the top of my head but like mccarthy is over the years you know as a lot of comedic actors do over time kind of like stretching their wings and actually showing very good range in terms of things where she keeps getting these opportunities i just wish she would get some better project sometimes yeah and to your point about bringing up a tv show the reason why a lot of these movies stop being made is because tv can do this better or or at least stretch out where you're seeing the growth in incremental ways which is more kind of accurate to reality Mm -hmm. right In, in a lot of ways this it's kind of the the zip through you know uh you know it has to be a slice of life version rather than trying to show growth over long periods of time or or especially multiple characters Mm -hmm. and multiple viewpoints that gets very muddled and messy uh at times um i think and again to melfi's credit i think he did a lot better job with saint vincent where it has you know a person who's gone through the ringer with being in uh like bill murray's character you know went to war had his wife sick in a hospital that he's been visiting her for eight years and and he doesn't have any money and he's trying to just kind of run out the clock and then gets reinvigorated with certain things in his life while also melissa mccarthy is going is the neighbor with a child and and he kind of gets invigorated by the child and and the melissa mccarthy character is going through a divorce and trying to just show you know, kind of just someone trying to trudge through life and come out the other side in a different way. And that works. That worked enough. This one just doesn't work most of the time. And I think, and that's why I don't really understand why this was so popular of a script, because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it's on the page. Like a movie like this, you know, it's not like I got lost because the, the bird wasn't good enough you know the the all the metaphors all the the dialogue all all that's there on the page when you're reading it so for this to be sold in such a way that it was instantly grabbed up for double digit millions that it shocks me at the end of the day and I think that also kind of goes to so I, I think one of the things that we as audiences struggle with is we become a little bit too critical when things just exist in a space and we have to meet it there. Yeah. Um, whereas critics will sit there and trash it, but audiences will love it when literally every beat is spelled out to them. And this is kind of, sure. this is the perfect audience film because it literally tells you exactly where you are every about 10 to 15 minutes. That's why there are so many Fast and Furious movies. That's why there's so many Mission (laughs) Impossible films. Uh This is just the dramedy version of that because we like the not having to sit there and ruminate, okay, where exactly are we? I have to now empathize with this person instead of them telling me how I get to feel. And it's not as much work. So of course people are going to enjoy that. And if you are a company that is trying to have the masses watch something over and over and over again, or put on, even though they haven't heard anything about it, you want that thing that has that familiar, familiar aspect of being told how we get to feel. Yeah, it's almost like audiences like to have their food chewed up for them and regurgitated back to them like a baby bird. Yes, we're all going to bring it more and more bird (laughs) references, please. That's what we are. That's why you come to this podcast, just more and more of the same bird references. So thank you, Morgan, for coming here and digesting this one with me. If you could bottom line it for the folks, 
If if you're on Letterbox and you have five stars in front, where are you putting this? If you're updating your your queue there, um, I will give it uh, one whole star, and half of that star is wow. for that Melissa McCarthy scene, Ooh. and the other half is uh, for Chris O'Dowd opening a whole bunch of paper sacks full of snowballs. Yes, and making that scene work. Yeah, it's true. I was surprised that he didn't open like at least one. Just give me one. But yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm a little kinder maybe on this film than you. I'm I'm somewhere like going back and forth between like one and a half and two. I was probably more of a two. And then like I rewatched that mm-hmm. opening scene. And I was just like, what are we doing here? We're just all yeah. wasting time. Um, but the, I think the really killer part is that this movie was... I was ready to be like, is this going to be in the Netflix big three award season films? Is this going to be something that, I mean, we haven't given Melissa McCarthy anything of real substance since uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? And it's like, was this going to be it? Nope. False start. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. Um, But thank you so much for for coming on and, and and. trudging through this with me uh, apologies on behalf of uh i was gonna <laughs> watch it anyways i'm glad I, I, I had a reason to do it yes it is part of the mental health process to yes. uh, assess the damage after we go through the pain so i i again appreciate you being on here tell the people uh where they can find you and you know untitled cinema gals keeps uh moving on what are you working on um well uh so yeah i have my podcast uh untitled cinema gals project which is uh you can find us on twitter at cinema gals uh co-host that with my friend chels and um we're just two leos being super chaotic and uh (laughs) occasionally uh actually talking about the films that we're covering we did recently uh cover alice and loman films which me i almost ended up with chris o'dowd i almost (laughs) had a mental breakdown with that Nice. Uh, after watching Drag Me to Hell. So uh, mm. we are doing a few more mini episodes, doing some double features. So head on nice. over there. Nice. Very good. I, I will. I will take that advice. I hope everyone does the same. Anything else? Like, are, what are you looking forward to with award season as we're just, you know, chatting here at the end? Like, oh. what are, what are you, I know we were talking, you know, a little bit about passing, which uh, at least I'll put in the Netflix chime mm-hmm. there um knowing that you have already seen the film yeah so i'm really excited about seeing passing again because i'm hoping because it premiered at sundance in the middle of a pandemic that uh n- hopefully people will behave and uh, i can actually go see it in a theater <laughs> um uh-huh. I, the cinematography is incredible tessa thompson and ruth nega are amazing so uh i can't wait for people to see that and I think The Lost Daughter with Olivia Coleman and Dakota Johnson and Jesse Buckley is coming out. And that is also a yeah. Netflix film. Um, yes. Super excited that Maggie Gyllenhaal is directing. Um, yeah. Those are that's really your- like, that's my hi- those are my highlights right now. Yeah, it's your New Year's Eve plans right there. Yep. That is coming out December 31st, uh, already premiered at Venice. Uh, we yeah. talked about that a bunch on this podcast, kind of seeing where that lands because I didn't expect uh, as much of the reaction, because again, that was kind of like late ads in terms of the festival stuff and, and wasn't really on our radar uh, back when the movie, uh, excuse me, when the movie year first started, I guess I say movie year as in like basically post Oscars. Yeah. Now, you know, the year we're still dealing with a lot uh, in terms of the Oscar season from last year. So, but Absolutely, yeah. Passing, uh, we're in the middle of the black and white renaissance, uh, yes. the black and white film renaissance, where we're talking. It, it makes it's very apropos, obviously, for passing, given the time period and and metaphors be mm-hmm. be what they are. But you know, we got Belfast coming out of you know yeah. Toronto's success, and you know, Come On, Come On, which also played there. Um, you know, so many black and white films, and I'm probably forgetting. Uh, oh yeah, and uh, the tragedy of Macbeth that just got a great response yeah. out of New York Film Festival. So that's four, and I might be forgetting more. So, and that's just four that's going into you know the end of the year awards conversation. So yeah, woo. and who knows, beginning of the year because of the extended Oscar season again, 
what things will end up in the uh, early part of 2022. Yeah, for sure. I mean, listen, maybe Marvel will have a black and white film by the time this is over. It's a very good medium uh, to work with. So. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, there are, I think since Francis Ha in 2013, people dabble in it. But the fact that we yeah. have four films in that are going to be widely released in like a two month span is kind of impressive. Yeah, and, and Netflix had forty year old version with it last mm-hmm. year, so you know they're they're no and Mank, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so hey, well, maybe it's becoming trendy. Uh, you know they kind of kicked it off a little bit uh, with Roma a few years ago, and that's why Belfast is getting compared to that in in some manner, um, not as intense, but you know definitely more of a crowd pleaser with that one. But you know it's it's definitely becoming uh, a trend again, and we'll see where that goes, but. We would love to have you on. You know, we we did a couple of, you know, films that, you know, we thought were on the periphery, like, you know, that got some nominations some places, but not all over the place. Um, But, you know, maybe as we get closer to the end of the year, we still have a few outstanding awards films. Unfortunately, this one, I believe, will not be one of those. Um, But we'll have to check in again with you, Morgan. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me again. 